Hi, I'm Dr. Susie Green, founder and CEO of the Positivity Institute, a positively deviant organization dedicated to creating a flourishing world. It's my pleasure to welcome you to the Positivity Prescription Podcast Series 1. The series is based on my 6M model of flourishing, which includes six core psychological capabilities that decades of research suggests are essential in creating a flourishing life. Mood, motivation, might, meaning, mindfulness, and mindset. So join me as I speak with experts from around the globe as they share their experiences and insights together with practical strategies to proactively improve your mental health and well-being. Today, I'm speaking with Professor Felicia Huppert. Felicia is a psychologist with a long-standing research interest in the science of well-being and the promotion of human flourishing. Her work brings together approaches from cognitive psychology and neuroscience with a population perspective derived from epidemiology. Felicia has advised governments and international bodies on the measurement of well-being and on policies to enhance well-being. Her current research focuses on studies of the effects of mindfulness and compassion training in education, healthcare and business organisations. Felicia is the founding director of the Wellbeing Institute at the University of Cambridge and Emeritus Professor of Psychology. She is Honorary Professor at the University of Sydney's Body, Heart and Mind in Business Research Group and Visiting Professorial Fellow in the Department of Psychology, University of New South Wales. Felicia has published hundreds of papers in peer-reviewed journals and a number of edited books. Her most recent book, written with a small team of European colleagues, is entitled Creating the World We Want to Live In, How Positive Psychology Can Build a Brighter Future, and it will be published by Routledge early next year. So welcome, Felicia. It's so wonderful to have you here today, particularly around the topic of mindfulness, which, as you know, there's been a lot of interest, increasing amounts of research, which is what I'm particularly interested in speaking to you about today, but also, I guess, a lot of hype in the community, a lot of posts on social media about mindfulness. So, Felicia, welcome. Could we start off just by talking a little bit about what mindfulness is? Sure. Thanks so much for asking me, Susie. R- really lovely to be uh, to be part of your your podcast series. So, what is mindfulness? It's a very simple idea, really. It's just about noticing, and what that involves is being aware of our experience as we're experiencing it. In other words, paying attention to what's going on right at the moment in our bodies, in our minds and in the world around us. And why that's important is because so much of the time in our sort of busy and stressed lives, we function on autopilot, sort of not really knowing, not noticing what we're experiencing, so caught up in planning or thinking back or just being busy with our lives. And yet, the evidence that we'll talk more about is that if we pause in the course of our busy lives and just notice what we're experiencing, it has a profound effect. It helps us to see more clearly and 
be calmer and make better decisions. Absolutely. So there's a lot of mindlessness, Felicia, isn't there, that goes on? Very true. Absolutely. And um, I, I guess in my own experience and, and learning around mindfulness, it appears that a lot of people use it as a basic attention training skill in as much as developing a, a mindfulness practice. And I'd love to hear a little bit more before we get to the science around the difference between mindfulness as a concept or a psychological construct, but also mindfulness training as well? Yeah, no, that, that's a really great question because being mindful is a characteristic that all of us have, you know, to a greater or lesser extent. I mean, for example, um, a lot of us are, are mindful when we're out in nature, you know, noticing the, the passing clouds, the sound of the birds, the, the sound of the water. Or when we're doing exercise, yoga or whatever, we're very often mindful of the experiences in our body. And actually that helps us to be sure we don't damage ourselves. <laughs> so, so people vary in how, how mindful they ordinarily are, or we could call it their trait, mindfulness. But even those people who are mindful in certain circumstances may not be very mindful when it comes to the contents of their own mind and their emotions, their thoughts, and that sort of thing. And the fact is, no matter how mindful we are normally, we can all benefit from increasing our practice or uh, having some training. Absolutely. And what would you recommend around training? I'm hearing generally a daily practice is a good thing. And I'm sure, again, we're skipping ahead a little bit to the research, but what would you recommend in terms of a daily practice or a regular practice? Can I just say a couple of things more about the kind of training that mindfulness offers? You're quite right that it is a training in attention and awareness, as you as you said earlier. But what's also really important about it, it's the attitude with which you practice the attention and the awareness. There are other techniques for making us aware of what's going on or paying attention in the ways that we choose to pay attention rather than having our attention directed by being captured by outside sources or whatever. And what's really important about mindfulness training is that in addition to saying it's helping us to learn how to pay attention, it's also doing it in a way that involves curiosity and gentleness and kindness. Because, of course, we could learn to pay attention to our experience in a cold or harsh way. And some of the evidence that we could talk about later suggests that's not going to do the trick. It's so important, the attitude that we take towards our awareness and our attention, that sort of gentle curiosity that we bring to it. That is part of the benefit of the training. Right. Felicia, would you differentiate then, because there's a term that uh, we often use when we're talking about mental toughness or um, resilience training, specifically around attentional control. So would you say mindfulness at its very basic level in terms of your mind wanders and you bring it back to your breath or the anchor as part of the practice is, a, as you said before, a, at a very basic level, an attentional control technique, but what you're saying is really mindfulness has so much more beyond that, particularly with this compassionate attitude. Absolutely, yes. You've put it very well. So, to take that specific example, part of the training is to sort of sit quietly and let's say focus on something that's always there like the breath or experiences in your body or perhaps sounds. 
And one of the first things you notice is, as you said, your mind wanders. So part of the training is to notice that your mind has wandered, not feel bad about it, but gently, kindly to bring it back to the thing that you were intending to focus on. And that training, constantly, you know, noticing the mind's wandered, gently bringing it back, that is absolutely a key part of the training and doing it without criticism, <laughs> with gentleness and, and recognizing that, yeah, that's what the training's about. Minds are meant to do their thing, you know, and it's completely fine for the mind to wander. But knowing how to put that in the background and then come back to what it is you really wanted to focus on. Yes. I've heard the analogy of a puppy, Felicia. You probably have too, where you, you place a puppy and you tell it stay, stay, but of course it'll come towards you and you wouldn't be harsh on a puppy in terms of, you know, taking it back to the place and telling it to stay again. Is that is that a good analogy? Yes, yes, it is. Uh, it's also one that we use in, um, in schools when we train kids in mindfulness. It's a very helpful one to use there. Yeah. I'm also really interested, Felicia, in terms of you made reference to using mindfulness to be much more aware of our internal uh, thoughts and emotions. And I know myself many years ago when I first started with mindfulness, I did a, a course and one of the sessions was specifically on noticing internal emotions. And I was so surprised, you know, thinking, oh, I'm quite, a, you know, an insightful person that's aware of my emotions. But I was actually really surprised that I started noticing emotions that I could have easily just skimmed over if I hadn't sort of stopped and in, as part of my morning practice, which I still continue now, had done this, you know, brief mindfulness practice, which was sort of bringing my attention to my, my internal emotional state. And again, as I said, I was so surprised that there were emotions there that were under the surface that if I had just busied myself that I wouldn't have paid attention to. And, and I wondered too whether perhaps that could potentially lead to a bit of a build-up and how sometimes, you know, without acknowledging them and being curious about them, that sometimes they can build up under the surface and then erupt sometimes. I'm, I'm curious to hear what you think about that too. Yeah, yes. No, I think that's a, a very good observation. And certainly with mindfulness, we learn to observe subtle emotions, subtle thoughts. And specifically that we often tend to push away or deny or suppress difficult emotions and difficult thoughts. And with mindfulness, one of the things we learn to do is allow them to be there, not turn away from them, but just allow them to be there and know that having difficult emotions or difficult thoughts is just part of the human experience. And it's okay. It's okay for that to happen. And that's a very powerful part of the learning. And it's one of the beautiful things that mindfulness does, therefore, is helps us to manage the difficult, while at the same time allowing us to savour the pleasant. So it's both things. It alerts us to the subtle and not so subtle, unpleasant or difficult experiences that we have, our thoughts and emotions, but also allows us to pay attention to the things that give us 
pleasure and joy. Yes. And again, I'm really keen to get to the science, but I I do have one other question, which often people do ask, is that many people will be aware that particularly, I guess, the type of mindfulness practices that we often hear have originated from Buddhism or Eastern philosophy. But I'm also aware, Felicia, that there are aspects of mindfulness in, in most of the major religious traditions. So I'd be keen to hear what you think about that. But also then, are there approaches that are, are less religious? Yes, look, I'm certainly no expert on this, but it's my understanding that there are similar practices, contemplative, reflective practices, probably in most spiritual traditions. But the way that mindfulness has come to the West is primarily through Buddhist practices, and of which there are very many and varied, but I think it's particularly the so-called insight meditation tradition that has led to the secular mindfulness practices that we tend to use in the West. And they are the ones that have been best studied and the ones for which we have the best scientific evidence. So let's get to the science, Felicia, because that's what I'm really excited to hear. So what does the research actually tell us at this point in time? And I know there's been a lot of it over the last, would you say, 10 years possibly, in terms of the benefits that it can offer. Yeah, there has been masses. I mean, thousands upon thousands of papers. It has actually been an exponential increase in the, in studies about mindfulness. And there's an enormous range of reported outcomes. But what I'd like to do just now is only focus on the ones that come from high quality studies and often have been the subject of meta-analyses. So putting together loads of studies to see what really holds up. And um, When you do look at that, there are three major areas where there are behavioral benefits. I'd like to also talk maybe about the physiological and the brain changes as well. But if we stay with the behavioral benefits, first of all, there's major benefits in both physical and mental health. So in the case of mental health, clear evidence for benefits with anxiety, depression and stress, and also with substance use. And in fact, I'd just like to say a little about the depression because some of those studies are so excellent and, and impressive. There have been a series of studies of large numbers of patients with recurrent depression. And there have been randomized controlled trials where um, half the group is given a program called Mindfulness-Based Cognitive Therapy, which is an eight-week program, very similar to Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction. And the benefits examined over a long period. And I think what is so impressive is that over a period of 60 weeks after the initial eight-week training, the reduction in the likelihood of having a depressive episode is 30% less if you are in the mindfulness group than in a comparison group. And if that comparison group was receiving a different treatment like an antidepressant treatment, it's 20% less over a 60-week period. So that is really substantial. And the effects, if you compare them, the effects are in the shorter term as great as with an antidepressant. And that's quite important. I mean, there is a real important place for antidepressants, particularly with severe depression. But of course, if you rely on medication, it only has short-term benefits, whereas 
if you do mindfulness interventions, they can have long-term benefits throughout life and also alert you perhaps to the very early stages that may be leading you into a depressive episode. So you may never even need to get to the point of having antidepressant medication. Right. Is that one of the hypotheses as to why there is such a significant benefit into the longer term too, Felicia? Oh, well, well, yes, because mindfulness meditation is a, a life skill training. It's a very powerful mental training. And it's not at all surprising that in the UK, in the National Health Service, the National Institute for Clinical Excellence recommends mindfulness-based interventions as a a first-line treatment for recurrent depression. Absolutely. We're seeing a lot more uptake within the clinical realm. I've been aware of that for a while now, so it's so wonderful to see that research. Yeah. There's quite a number of um, very positive effects. Mindfulness improves our immune function it reduces inflammation. Of course, it has a very good effect on the uh, stress hormones, reducing that and the stress response. But it also, interestingly enough, increases telomerase activity, which is an indicator of cell aging. And in fact, there's a study of long-term meditators compared to the general population. And over the age of 50, the meditators, if you look at markers of aging, come out about seven years younger than their counterparts. So it's a great one for positive aging. Absolutely. If you look at people who are practicing a sort of mindfulness while they're in a brain scanner, you can actually see activation in the parts of the brain that you would expect, which is to do with attentional control, bodily awareness, and emotion regulation. And what's so remarkable is also how quickly the brain rewires itself once people have learned mindfulness techniques. I mean, I I don't know about you, Susie, but I would have thought that, let's say, you know, after an eight-week, a standard course, it may still take months or years before your brain is rewired in a positive way. But the extraordinary thing is that after just eight weeks, at the very end of the course, if you compare brain structures before and after the course, you can see already that there's increases in the gray matter or the connectivity in areas that you would expect, areas to do with attention, learning and memory, emotion regulation, body awareness and self-awareness, and also with compassion. So it is absolutely remarkable how quickly this rewiring occurs in the brain. It's compelling, isn't it? It's such a strong, I guess, in the corporate world, we call it a business case, but a a strong rationale for the usage of it. I know when I was teaching at Sydney Uni, the students were required to do a a positive psychology intervention of some sort on themselves over the semester, so a 12-week term. And a lot of the students used to pick mindfulness because they thought it was going to be quick and easy. (laughs) But I still recall uh, one of my students telling me that about halfway through the semester when she'd been implementing a daily practice that she hadn't really noticed in herself, but one of her girlfriends said to her, what's going on with you? (laughs) Oh, (laughs) lovely. There's also a lovely story about a psychiatrist who uh, said to his wife, you know, I think I better try this mindfulness business because so many of my patients seem to be doing it. (laughs) So he did this, uh, you know, MBSR course 
And uh, at the end of the eight weeks, he said to his wife, well, it was interesting. You know, I'm glad I did that, but I'm going to stop the practice now. And she said, oh, no, please don't. You are so much nicer to live with. <laughs> Absolutely. So isn't that wonderful that the people around us do actually notice it? And uh, yes. and it's great if you can give feedback to your partner or, you know, or friend that, again, might be positive reinforcer to keep the practice up. Yeah. And we know that mindfulness is very good in terms of reducing stress reaction and the stress response, and also for pain. And uh, it's widely used now in pain clinics. And it's not that it necessarily takes away the pain, although often the reported severity of pain is less. But what it does is changes our relationship to the pain. So rather than tensing and bracing and having all these thoughts about, oh, my life will never be the same again and this is a catastrophe. We can explore the pain with interest and curiosity and, again, a sort of a gentleness and notice that the pain changes from time to time. It ebbs and flows. It moves around. And that helps us very much to manage the pain experience. So, um, another area where mindfulness is very effective is with cognitive and affective processes. So, in the case of cognitive function, there's very good evidence that it improves our ability to sustain attention and working memory, executive function. And also, there's evidence of improved problem solving. And here's an interesting one, reduced bias. We do all have unconscious biases, but through mindfulness, we can bring those to the fore and then they're no longer unconscious. And once we recognize our biases, we can make better decisions. Yes. And even be much more conscious of what we're about to say, <laughs> potentially. Although, you know, we are humans and sometimes we uh, mindlessly might say something that we regret afterwards. But I, am, I absolutely agree that uh, an increased amount of uh, mindfulness or consciousness awareness, we're able to be much more mindful of what we're saying and the impact it could have on the people around us as well. Yes, I was going to come to, you know, interpersonal relationships, but just, just want to say a tiny bit more about the emotional effect or the affective effect. So, we know that mindfulness also increases positive mood and, you know, reduces negative mood, but very importantly, it increases our emotion regulation, our ability to control our emotions. So, we, we still feel them. We might feel angry because of an injustice or perceived injustice, but rather than lashing out, mindfulness helps us to just pause, to notice the thoughts of anger and the bodily experiences of anger, the bodily sensations, but to also think, I wonder what's the best way to respond. And so rather than just reacting automatically, we can respond more wisely to such emotions. Yes, they refer to that as the choice point. Is that right, Felicia? Yeah, exactly. So if we pause, it does give us choice over how to respond. And then, Susie, just coming back to your point about how we relate to others, what's really important too about mindfulness is although the courses often don't specifically mention relationship to other people, we find that there are benefits. So, relationship quality tends to be improved, our ability to perceive another person's 
point of view. And just last year, there was a really important study that came out from um, colleagues at Sydney University and the Catholic University, a meta-analysis of all the studies that looked at the relationship between mindfulness and helping or pro-social behavior and shown very large effects, even if pro-social behavior was never mentioned during the mindfulness course. And then, as you say, one of the beautiful things about mindfulness is mindful listening. And actually, one of the greatest gifts that we can give anyone is to give them our attention and to deeply listen to them. There's also an indigenous tradition of deep listening, and the word dadiri is used to express this. And it really is a most wonderful gift. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for sharing the the research, Felicia. And in that we we don't have a lot of time today. I could talk to you all day about this, actually. But we're really keen to hear about your own personal experience with mindfulness. I came to mindfulness purely through the science. Between 2006 and 2008, the UK government Office of Science ran a big project called the Foresight Project on Mental Capital and Wellbeing, where they recognised that their greatest resource was people. And in order for the country to flourish, you needed people to flourish. And over a two-year period and inviting 400 experts and so on, they were looking at what were the determinants of flourishing and what were the interventions that increased flourishing. And I was asked to write a sort of overarching review. And I kept coming across this thing called mindfulness, which I actually, (laughs) I have to admit, I hadn't heard of. But I was very impressed even back then and started to get involved with interventions using mindfulness in education, in, in healthcare settings. And then one day the penny dropped and and I thought, hmm, maybe I should try it. (laughs) So I did a uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction course, a standard eight-week course, and honestly haven't looked back. It was life-changing. It's as simple as that. And so these days I do have a daily mindfulness practice. And I tend to do it in the morning, first thing, or, you know, straight after a shower and a cup of tea. And on days where I don't do it, the day doesn't seem to go as well. Sort of a positive reinforcer, isn't it? When you do your practice and you do notice that you are handling things a lot better, a lot calmer, it just positively reinforces the practice. Absolutely. And one of the interesting things about the evidence is that although the trainings recommend between, say, 20 and 45 minutes a day, the evidence is very clear that even 10 minutes a day makes a difference. There's a lovely study from the Harvard Business Review. The title of it is Mindfulness Works but only if you work at it. And in that study, it showed even 10 minutes a day uh, has a beneficial effect. And if you think that there are 1,440 minutes in a day, (laughs) most of us can really afford to take 10 minutes. Absolutely. That we do differentiate. I know in, in our work and the training, we often talk about having the importance and the benefits of having a daily personal practice, but also trying to improve your everyday mindfulness. And you would be aware that, and if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, the famous Buddhist monk Thich Nhat Hanh spoke about when you're washing the dishes, you're washing the dishes. So what are your thoughts on everyday mindfulness and the personal practice? Oh, absolutely. So there's the formal and the informal practice. And the formal practice, as we're saying, is is very helpful on a daily basis. But the beautiful thing about mindfulness is it's completely portable. You can do it anywhere, anytime. So yes, having a shower mindfully, 
eating mindfully is an absolutely wonderful practice because it, it enhances the flavor, the texture, even the sound of food if you eat mindfully. Yes, there, you can take any moment of any day and just turn your attention to that and become mindful and it's a very enriching experience. Absolutely. So Felicia, why do you think there has been such a strong interest in uptake? I know that both you and I have done work in schools and there seems to be increasing interest in the uptake of mindfulness in schools, but also workplaces. Yeah, what are your thoughts there? Look, I think we are living in an increasingly complex and interconnected world, you know, with new technologies that we're having to adapt to all the time, with globalization, with 24-7 news, with huge impact of social media. And among the other things that this is doing is it's creating very high expectations by other people and also we have high expectations of ourselves. So we're very driven and often don't feel good enough. And all of that, all of those factors are leading to increases in stress and anxiety and distress. And I think people are longing for more control over their lives, being better able to make decisions for more peace and more enjoyment in their lives. And in terms of the schools, I mean, I've heard the famous John Kabat-Zinn say that, you know, we tell the kids to pay attention, but we don't teach them how to pay attention. What is your experience in using mindfulness in schools as well? I think that's absolutely true. We do need to teach children how to pay attention, both the, the basic skills and the gentleness of the attitude so that they don't give themselves a hard time if they've done badly in that essay or if their friend tells them on social media that they don't like what they're wearing or, or whatever it is. You know, helping people to feel better about themselves is hugely important. And that self-compassion component of mindfulness is really essential. A colleague and I recently summarized all of the benefits of mindfulness in education in an Oxford bibliography, and they really are tremendous. For kids, the cognitive benefits are certainly there, the benefits in attentional control and executive function and academic performance, but also the other benefits in terms of well-being and cheerfulness and optimism and being more empathic and compassionate as well as physically and mentally healthier. Those are really, really striking. And it seems to me, you know, mindfulness in education is so important. We should be teaching it in every school, in every curriculum on a par with literacy, numeracy, science. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And uh, I know in preparation for today's interview, we had a brief chat and um, I asked you whether there was any evidence or support to some of the critiques that might be arising around that mindfulness isn't a panacea or it's not for everybody. And you mentioned a really interesting study, which uh, it'd be great for you to just mention. Yeah, it's interesting. I would say that being mindful is for everyone, but not everyone feels comfortable about mindfulness meditation. Mm. And yet, as we said earlier, mindfulness meditation is simply the formal part of the practice, but you can also do it informally. And it's very helpful to have a formal practice, even if, as we said, it's the shortest 10 minutes a day. But certainly people have asked the question, can mindfulness do harm? And a very important study was published last year by Ruth Bayer and her colleagues. 
and they reviewed all the studies that have used evidence-based mindfulness training programs and recorded whether individuals had any adverse events relating to those programs. And what they found is, yes, there are a certain number of such adverse events reported, even uh, up to 10% in one or two studies. And in a way, it's not surprising because, as we've also said, one of the things about mindfulness training is it actually confronts you with difficult thoughts and difficult emotions. And any form of psychotherapy or any time you're confronted with such difficulties is bound to have effects. But what was so encouraging about the study was that the numbers of reported adverse effects was no different in the group that had the mindfulness training compared with the controls. So there's no evidence that if you do a really highly developed, accredited, evidence-based program, there's no evidence that such a program causes harm. I can't say about, you know, other programs which may come from a different tradition. We just don't have the evidence about that. I guess I have also found, Felicia, just as you've mentioned there, that sometimes through the practice of mindfulness that it does bring up, as you said, these difficult thoughts and emotions. I know I've had my own experience with that, but also having worked with hundreds of clients over the years. And I guess, you know, I would recommend, and I'm you know, assuming you would agree too, that sometimes that might lead to the need to seek some professional psychological support because there may be things that have been pushed down for a long time that might arise through the practice and that sometimes it can be very helpful to seek professional support around that too. Yes, it can. And that reminds me of something else that I think is really important to say, that particularly in education, it is really crucial that the teachers who are teaching mindfulness to the kids themselves have a mindfulness practice and a deep understanding of the experiential effects, both because it's impossible to teach it authentically unless you do, but also because it helps them to deal with any difficulties that may come up with children, you know, if they've had that proper training. There are a lot of programs that are out there that are not you know, where the teachers have not been properly accredited and the programs have not been evaluated. They're often called evidence-based because they're based on other programs, but these programs themselves may not have been evaluated. And one of the really important things is to make sure that any program that's rolled out has actually been properly evaluated. Absolutely. And we might, in our Facebook page, put some resources and some recommendations uh, for people that are interested in those evidence-based programs too. So we haven't got much time left, Felicia, but just one final question. What do you see for the future of mindfulness if we were here chatting in five years' time or ten years' time? What would you like to see when it comes to mindfulness? Perhaps one of the main things I'd like to see is the recognition that mindfulness trains the mind just as exercise trains the body. And our minds are such precious and important things that we we really do need to make sure that this training is available to everybody. And particularly in schools, it should be part of the curriculum, as I was saying earlier, an equal part of the curriculum. It's actually been suggested that mindfulness is life's most important life skill. 
it's certainly a resource for us as individuals confronting hard times, and there will always be hard times. There'll always be natural disasters, and there'll be man-made disasters, and climate change, and pandemics, and it resources us to manage those in a way that's as calm and wise as possible. And at the same time, by being resourced in that way, we can help others to manage such difficult times and we can help our communities as well. Absolutely. And I know I often quote you as referring to mindfulness as the foundation of flourishing and I guess I couldn't agree more. (laughs) And uh, we'll be talking about the other M's in in my 6M model, but without mindfulness, it's very hard to apply any of the other psychological capabilities I would suggest. Felicia, thank you. It's been so wonderful speaking with you. It'd be great to hear if you have one book or podcast, a resource that you'd recommend recommend for people that want to learn a little bit more about mindfulness? One that's been around for a little while that I warmly recommend is the book by Mark Williams, who founded the Oxford Mindfulness Centre, and Danny Penman, and it's called Mindfulness, Finding Peace in a Frantic World, and it does also come with its own uh, training program. And if I could also put in a plug for a, a future book, along with colleagues in Europe who uh, work in science of well-being and positive psychology, uh, we have a, a book which is due to come out early next year called Creating the World We Want to Live In. And we describe mindfulness as one of the core capabilities that will enable us to do that. So um, perhaps starting from next year, that would be another book that might be worth having a look at. Absolutely. And we'll definitely um, be posting that on social media and sending it out to our list as well for people to access when it is available. So thank you so much, Felicia. Oh, actually, I I do have one as well that I thought I was going to throw in. I'm not sure if you've come across this one, Felicia. It's a beautiful children's picture book based on an original story by Tolstoy called The Three Questions. I'm not sure if you've seen that one. As I said, it's a beautiful picture book, so great for children. And the, the three questions are, what's the most important time? And that time is now. Who's the most important person? And that is the person in front of me right now. And what's the most important thing to do? And that is to give that person my full attention and to do good for that person. So um, it's a beautiful book, one of my favourites. Yes, I I have seen it. It's lovely. Gorgeous. Well, thank you so much again, Felicia, for sharing your knowledge. As I said, I could speak to you all day about this topic, but we only have a very brief amount of time. But thank you. And we hope to have you back again one day to talk more about mindfulness. Thanks very much, Susie, for the opportunity. Thanks very much for listening to the Positivity Prescription Podcast Series 1. Don't forget to sign up to our Facebook page and for our e-news. You can subscribe from the website, thepositivityinstitute.com.au, where you can also stay up to date with all things positive. See you next episode and remember, life's too short to languish.